MSW Media. News was wearing daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, July 28th, 2020. Today, Senator Tom Cotton has referred to slavery as a, quote, necessary evil in his opposition to a 1619 curriculum. Trump's COVID testing czar says turnaround times are too long. A Mississippi state audit exposes a welfare fraud scheme that benefited Brett Favre. Yes, I'm going after Brett Favre. Trump's national security advisor Robert O'Brien has tested positive for coronavirus. Obama's administrator for Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, Andy Slavitt, explains how we can beat the curve. Republicans battle each other to lower or eliminate unemployment benefits. Trump's turnaround on his COVID response only came after he learned it was decimating Republican voters. And a National Guard officer, President Lafayette Square Park, contradicts claims by Barr and Trump that the clearing of the park was planned in advance. I'm your host, A.G. All right, everybody, we have a great show for you today, including a coronavirus update and... The Republicans' plan for another stimulus package, which wouldn't be necessary if Republicans had accepted the Democrats' proposal from 10 weeks ago. Uh, I'll be joined by Jordan for Headlines from Under the Radar and the Good News Block. And we'll be talking to law professor and executive editor at Just Security, Joshua Geltzer, about what the House Judiciary should be asking Bill Barr during his appearance before that committee today, Tuesday, provided he shows up. I bet... I put my beans a couple months ago that he'll come up with a reason not to be there. Also, I wanted to announce we are taking a short vacation one week, August 24th through 28th. There will be content for Daily Beans, but we won't have the daily news updates. Um, We're taking a much-needed week uh, vacation before the final 65 days before the election. We're going to be nonstop after that. Again, there will be content for you, just not breaking news updates, and that is the week of August 24th. I also like to announce that for patrons, we are going to be starting a Mary Trump book club for her book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. This is um, possible because of a patron named Stephen Isaacs, who... Uh, has agreed to sponsor this book club. It's for patrons only. If you're not a patron, go to patreon.com slash the daily beans and sign up. It's only three bucks a month. And uh, you can also sign up to be on a wait list to get a free membership, uh, premium membership, because we have patrons who are buying year-long memberships for those who can't afford to do it right now because of COVID. And you can also go there if you want to buy a year-long membership for just $36 for somebody who isn't able to swing it. We have a lot to get to, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Andy Slavitt. He was the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under Obama, and he's the host of the podcast In the Bubble. He put together a thread about being in the bubble, how we can virtually eliminate the virus anytime we decide to as a country, provided we decide to. He says we uh, can be back to a reasonable, normal existence, including schools, travel, job growth, nursing homes, movie theaters, etc., and that we could do it in a matter of weeks. Um, He then goes on to give New Zealand as an example and shows their curve, along with information about how they're back to normal, as, as normal as can be expected prior to a vaccine becoming available, but pretty much back to normal. He then says... Ah, if you say it's not fair to compare us to New Zealand because it's an island nation, okay, how about Germany? 
And if you don't like that comparison, how about countries that have been in big trouble, like Italy, France, and Spain? Countries that had it reasonably bad the same time we did. In fact, he says, pick virtually any country you want and then shows 47 countries' graphs and how their curves have been flattened. 47. But don't tell me, he says, that the U.S. can't take action if we want to. And we can't face the families of 150,000 people who didn't have to die and then tell them that this had to happen. And I think it's why our national political leaders won't go near those families and the grieving process. But the good news is, as always, we are four to six weeks away from being able to do what other countries around the world have done. And we've always had the ability to do this. He says if we threw everything at the virus, if we threw the kitchen sink at the virus in the United States and started now with the goal of being open for business in October, uh, this is what would happen. So he says, first, let's define the kitchen sink. What do we mean by throwing everything at it? And here he has uh, six different things. The first is to start with universal mask wearing. We didn't do this in March or April. Let's chalk it up to faulty instructions, but we know better now. The second thing, keep the bars and restaurants and churches and transit closed. All the hotspots. All of those are hotspots. Number three, prohibit interstate travel. I've been saying this since February, uh, since I saw McNeil on Matto. We have to prohibit interstate travel. Number four, prohibit travel into the country, into our country. And since no one will let us into their country, this shouldn't be hard. Number five, have hotels set up to allow people with symptoms to isolate from their families at no cost. And number six, Instead of a 50% lockdown, which is what we had in March and April, how about a 90% lockdown? Meaning most of the Americans who couldn't stay home in April because they were essential workers, driving trucks, delivering, working in healthcare, they would actually stay home with us. Most of them would. That means the economy would take a several weeks long hit and we would need to extend unemployment insurance. He says, it would be a tough few weeks, but we could still do things. We could be outside, we could enjoy nature, gather safely with friends. Our grandparents who lived through a decade-long depression, a a six-year world war, or whatever hardship they faced in their country would tell us we could do this. We could even create friend and family bubbles. The NBA has been in a bubble for three weeks, and they started with a 10% positivity rate, and they have now found and eliminated all cases. So what would this look like, he says. Slavit says, first, nothing much would happen. Cases would still grow from the prior weeks due to the incubation period. Hospitals would still be full and continue to rise. We would still see people die. And then the COVID truthers would have a field day, tweeting every day the same shit. Quote, America has become a fascist government, or we need to liberate, or we've been doing this and nothing's happening, or more people are dying from staying home than from COVID, blah, blah, blah. Or, he says, someone could take President Trump's phone away. (laughs) Uh, After a few weeks of that, though, what we would see is that, as in many countries, the R-naught, or the infection rate, would, uh, would, you know, in many of these countries has dropped to 0.3, but let's be conservative and say that our R-naught drops to 0.5. 60,000 cases becomes 58. 6,000 cases become 6. 600 cases become 1. After eight weeks, you have a small enough number that someone in a health department could call every few cases that come up, you know, every day on the phone in one morning. Also, we would have plenty of tests and we could get results the same day. And we could test anyone going into a church or in an event. And if we find a case, we can isolate that person and we could get the people they came in contact with either at home or We could uh, make sure they isolate at home or put them in one of these hotels if at home they have other people that could be infected. 
We also would have plenty of PPE and ventilators. Nurses and doctors could catch their breath, recover, and go back to healing our other issues. We could hug our parents again. Our scientists can work on vaccines, and they can get it right because they aren't rushed at warp speed. And the cost to us would be six to eight weeks of our time. If we don't do this, we will be living on the bubble until a vaccine that works is available to all Americans. And my favorite tweet of the thread, he says, quote, the major objection to all this, people who think this infringes on their rights. But on the way to Walmart, those people had to drive 30 miles per hour. They couldn't park in the handicap space. And they can't just eat the cheese balls in the store. Uh, I do that, but that's okay. These people are freer than they would be anywhere else on the planet. So... If you get a chance, listen to Andy's podcast in the bubble. I think you'll appreciate it. Check out his thread. It's really informative. Now, buckle up, because I'm about to get angry. I'm going to get angry AG today. Republicans have finalized, I think, their COVID stimulus proposal. I'm going to put stimulus in quotes. It includes another $1,200 check, uh, an extended eviction moratorium, great, uh, funding for reopening schools, and funding for testing. Uh, it also calls for a much lower unemployment check. Uh, they want you only to get 70% of what you were making before you became unemployed. They don't even want you to get your full pay. They want you to get 70% of what you were making. First of all, uh, most states say that making this change and not just continuing the $600 uh, would take months to institute, to, to make the changes in. And then there would be means testing, and we don't have the <laughs> we don't have the the staffing to do that kind of calculations for each household as to what they should make based on their job. The unemployment uh, process to file would become more difficult, and we've seen lines and up around the block, people's people waiting hours and hours in line, never being able to get through on the phone, and then they want to change it and make it more difficult to compute. Many Republicans didn't even want uh, unemployment benefits to continue. Um, they said that the reason that they didn't want unemployment benefits to continue is because uh, paying people to stay home will incentivize them not to work. Which is the same fucking excuse Republicans have used forever when there wasn't a pandemic and 50 million people weren't out of work. Republicans actually think that if you continue to get paid during a period of time when no jobs are available to even apply for, that you're a lazy piece of shit that will never come off of unemployment. It's absolutely stunning ignorance of what it's like to be an actual working American. Though not surprising, coming from the assholes that thought $1,200 would last you 12 weeks just fine. Well, fuck them. And of course, the Democrats will demand more, just like they did last time. And if the Republicans had listened to them, we wouldn't be needing another fucking stimulus package. And we could have saved money. It's going to cost us more now. But Democrats will demand more for Americans, rightfully, and Republicans will blame them for holding up the funds. They say people are being thrown out on the streets or being evicted from their houses because you're holding this up, when in reality, they're being evicted because they put a, a bullshit timeline on this and, and that the Democrats didn't want. The Republicans did. The Republicans did this. But... While Republicans continue to say just the tip, while Dems want to go balls deep, Trump's approval rating is tanking, as are the approval ratings of Republicans in Congress, and we will vote them all out. Please check to make sure you're registered to vote and find out from your local postmaster if and when you can mail in your ballot. 
uh, if you have that option and check with your registrar for ballot drop-off locations you may be able to drop them off that could be better than mailing them because right now we know there's a memo from Trump's new acolyte installed postmaster general to delay mail leave it behind etc we're seeing a rise in the delay of mail so don't risk it make sure you check so now we know what uh, now that we know the Senate Republicans aren't doing uh, well we know what they're not doing about COVID but what about Trump Many people in the media say he's changed his tone. He's wearing a mask. He's wearing a mask now. He's telling people to socially distance. Though he is still threatening to defund schools that don't open for in-person learning in the fall, even though none of us know the long-term effects of COVID on anyone, let alone children. And while it's great that Trump is finally wearing a mask and telling people to avoid large gatherings, we learn from the Washington Post what changed his mind. And it will piss you off, so grab a pillow to scream in. People close to Trump, many speaking anonymously, say the president's inability to address the crisis is due to his almost pathological unwillingness to admit error, a positive feedback loop of overly rosy assessments and data from advisors and Fox News, and a penchant for magical thinking that prevented him from engaging with the pandemic at all. We learn why he's this way in Mary Trump's book. You should read it. And it seemed like Trump was going to ignore this shit until we had a vaccine. But White House administration officials showed Trump projections of how the virus is decimating Republican states full of Trump voters. That's when Trump pivoted, changed his mind, and quote-unquote changed his tone, which I'm sick of hearing. So when you ask me why I say he's not my president, that's why. Something I've always known. He doesn't give a shit if I die. Even though I'm a veteran and technically... Uh, until recently, a white suburban housewife. He doesn't care if I die because I won't vote for him. Same reason he went after McCain and Gold Star parents and why he wasn't at John Lewis's memorial. It's why he won't acknowledge bounties put on U.S. troops by Putin or why he goes after Romney and Justin Amash and protesters and why he denounces Black Lives Matters and protesters and because we won't suck his dick. Well, he can suck mine November 3rd. We'll be right back with headlines from under the radar right after this. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there anything interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Uh, I've personally dealt with trauma and PTSD, and I'm a big believer in seeking help when you need it. And these are hard times right now. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional licensed counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours. BetterHelp's service is available for clients worldwide with a broad range of expertise in their counselor network, a lot of which might not be locally available in your area at traditional therapist's office. The best thing about BetterHelp is you can log into your account anytime from anywhere and send a message to your counselor, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Visit BetterHelp.com dailybeans. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for Headlines from Under the Radar. Joining me today is Jordan Coburn. Hey, Jordan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. How's Pod Dog? Pod Dog has tapeworms. Pod Dog oh, has no. pod worms. 
Oh no, <laughs> podworms. <laughs> <laughs> Not the cutest hashtag, but uh, yeah. No. <laughs> but yeah, she's no. she's uh she she got treated for them at the vet yesterday at Bodie, the one that you recommended yeah. to me. Yeah, aren't so, they great? Yes, they were so great, and they did a social distance thing where they just came in and like took her out of the back of my car <laughs> and then just mm-hmm. did everything and then brought her back and yeah, she's really she she did really well and they were super awesome. So if you're in the San Diego area, I would definitely recommend them. But yeah, she's doing great. Thank you for asking. Excellent. And she did get treated for them. So everyone, no need to email your uh, organic pumpkin remedies, (laughs) etc. Yeah, that is definitely our listeners vibes. (laughs) No, but it's true. Organic pumpkin does work. We do. I do know that. Uh, I am. I am very familiar with all of the uh, the dog, the doggyopathic uh, remedies. So, yes, that's cool. That's Um, good to know. But everyone's concern is 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 i'm grateful for it mm-hmm. and i'm sure you are too now um early on i promised a story about brett Favre, uh and so here you are from the washington post and this story is a few weeks old and i wasn't going to talk about it but because he golfed with trump this weekend while people drowned and died from covid fuck Favre. um favre uh all the, here's the, here it is from the washington post Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre has begun a repayment of $1.1 million he received from a fund intended to help needy Mississippi residents. That's according to a state auditor. And uh, Favre tweeted Wednesday that he never received monies for obligations he didn't meet and added, I love Mississippi and would never knowingly do anything to take away from those that need it most. Sure. Um, Favre was paid for speaking engagements for which he did not appear, according to a state audit that revealed uh, Monday an alleged multi-million dollar welfare fraud scheme. Mississippi State Auditor Shad White said Wednesday there were no indications that the former Green Bay Packers great was aware the money he received came from that fund. The audit resulted in a report claiming Mississippi's Department of Human Services oversaw more than $94 million that went into two nonprofit organizations that spent it suspiciously. It was released months after former DHS director and five others were indicted on state charges of embezzlement of about $4 million in temporary assistance for needy families. Um, They have pleaded not guilty and are awaiting trial. So we'll cover that trial, too, but Brett Favre can suck it. Jordan? Yeah, that sucks. (laughs) Brett Favre can suck it Jordan (laughs) Um, (laughs) Speaking of people who can suck it uh, Okay Possibly one of the worst senators around right now Tom Cotton in Arkansas He got himself in trouble again By saying that slavery He described slavery as a quote Necessary evil End quote Uh, in an interview, and he, this is just part of his, he's, he's so fixated, he's, start, he's quite literally started a campaign to prevent U.S. schools from teaching the 1619 Project, which is a really amazing project by the New York Times that completely gives an accurate account of slavery in the United States and the role that it played in our history and how it was exploited and how it was folded into capitalism in this country and how it just so much of this country was built on the backs of black people and black lives and black culture. And it's an amazing listen the podcast is incredible and so informative and schools are starting to teach it because it's so informative and you know we talk about this lack of accurate accounting of our history and history textbooks and the 1619 project is just 
something that they work so hard on clearly you can tell it's done incredibly well and it's produced incredibly well and it gives us information in a way that's really easy to understand and digest so schools are understandably starting to teach it to students and tom cotton has been freaking out about it uh saying that there's no way that federal funding should go to these schools that are this is his direct quote he said uh this is last week he called that project a racially divisive revisionist account of history that denies the noble principles of freedom and equality on which our nation was founded not a single cent of federal funding should go to indoctrinate young americans with this left-wing garbage um and i just want to make the point calling you know calling history left-wing garbage is authoritarian white supremacy Calling objective mm-hmm. facts partisan in nature is just another dog whistle to the racist that cry fake news in an attempt to try to suppress the truth. Fuck Tom Cotton. He sucks so bad, and he has no Democratic challenger, which really sucks. Super bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so... I'm so sorry. You can hear my dog eating food in the background. <laughs> it's probably just going to be like this in quarantine now. <laughs> it's just... Hey, dogs eat, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, what what... Cotton told the Arkansas Democrat uh, Gazette in this article, this uh, going back to his necessary evil quote, he said, We have to study the history of slavery and its role and impact on the development of our country because otherwise we can't understand our country. As the founding fathers said, it was the necessary evil upon which... Uh, the union was built. But the union was built in a way, as Lincoln said, to put slavery on the course to its ultimate distinction. He got a bunch of shit saying that, obviously, because it's really fucked up, and then he tried to explain himself and backpedal, saying that he was just citing Americans, uh, America's founding fathers' views, and that it was them that actually <laughs> described slavery as a necessary evil. But I just want to, like, revisit that. You said... As the founding father said, slavery was a necessary mm-hmm. evil. Like, if I say, as my mother always said, you're fucking ugly, and then someone says, that's fucked, and then you're just like, well, I was just quoting my mother. It's like, no, not only were you saying that rude, fucked up thing, you were just reinforcing it by adding a footnote to back it up. Like, that's all you did with that. Yeah. And not not only that, but that sentence, uh, as the founding father said, it was a necessary evil. That wasn't sandwiched in the middle of of him saying that the founding fathers were shit asshole racists. It, it was right. in the middle of him praising the founding yes. fathers. So it, yes. it's not like you know, if if I had said something like. Our founding fathers were all slave owners. Most of them were slave owners. They were racists. They didn't believe that women were equal. They believed that, you know, this and that, and they were just terrible people. And, you know, as they always said, you know, slavery is a necessary evil. What a bunch of dickheads, right? And then you mm-hmm. took that little sentence out of there and out of context. That is not what the fuck happened here. That is Mm-mm. not what happened here. No, it is not. <laughs> what a piece of shit. No, nice it's not. try, Tom. Not at all. Not at all. He's saying, hey, let's go easy on the slave owners. They had to do it. That's what he's saying. That's the that's yeah. the only thing that he's saying. And you know that he's saying that because he has this campaign to literally deny federal funding to any schools that are trying to give what is a wonderfully rounded out and accurate view of what slavery really meant to this country and the people in it. That's the context here. Him arguing that we shouldn't teach that part of history in school mm-hmm. uh, so he can go fuck himself well him and brett Favre. yes <laughs> yeah they can go have a fuck party but he is um okay so what's 
I only found th- there's this independent that is running against him, or not even officially, but Dan Whitfield. Have you heard of this guy? No. He's so he he's an independent that might be able to get on the ballot. He's been everything. He's been like in a court. Uh, battle and a legal process to process <laughs> a legal process to try to get <laughs> to try to get on the the ballot but the judge in that case ruled that they have declaratory standing I guess and and because of that his team is saying that they will win their appeal to get on the ballot and uh, he ends this tweet that he posted today just 22 minutes ago because obviously the story broke so everybody's like who the fuck is running against this piece of shit and now (laughs) and dan whitfield is coming out being like me i'm trying uh and he ends his tweet by saying at senator tom cotton will not win by corruption so Hmm. we'll see i don't know i don't know i didn't look too much into into that guy before we popped on i had just looked at his twitter right before this so we'll we'll see i mean i hope yeah i just a fucking fuck tom cotton and brett Favre. well that, that guy could be a piece of shit too we'll have to find out we'll do more research he totally could yeah yeah absolutely yeah i'm not i'm not endorsing him strictly just reporting on the other people that are even potentially mm-hmm. in the mix in his race all right well thank you for that story next up president donald trump's national security advisor robert o'brien has tested positive for covid19 that's according to an official familiar with what happened O'Brien's diagnosis makes it the, makes him the highest-ranking Trump administration official known to have tested positive. Known. Uh, it's unclear when O'Brien last met with Trump. Their last public appearance together was over two weeks ago during a visit to U- the U.S. Southern Command in Miami on July 10th. Uh, O'Brien is experiencing, quote, mild symptoms and is, quote, self-isolating and working from a secure location off-site. That's according to an anonymous statement to the press from the White House. They're making anonymous statements from the White House now. Uh, that statement confirmed O'Brien's test results to reporters before his staff was formally informed. Um, several National Security Council staffers told CNN that they weren't informed that O'Brien tested positive and learned of the news from media reports, and they've been working with the motherfucker. Uh, O'Brien, one of Trump's top aides, recently returned from Europe, where he and his top deputy met with officials from the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Italy. So contact tracing 101. You should probably contact those foreign officials as well. A senior administration official told CNN that O'Brien has been working from home since last week. And a source familiar said O'Brien was last in the office on Thursday when he abruptly left the White House. The White House statement said there is no risk of exposure to the president or the vice president because that's all that anyone cares about, right? Uh, White House Chief uh, Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow told reporters one of O'Brien's daughters contracted COVID-19, and that's how he thinks he got it. Great, Larry Kudlow. Thanks for violating HIPAA on the front lawn of the White House. No big deal. Um, uh, Great. What a a piece of shit. And, and of course, Larry Kudlow is now wearing a mask uh, out front uh, of the White House because Republicans now are pro-mask, just so you know, because they found out Republicans were dying. I covered that in the first first part of the show. So, Jordan, what do you have for us? Yes. So, we have new accounting from, not in the money sense, uh, from... A Army National Guard officer who was a witness to what happened at Lafayette Square last month when all the protesters were violently cleared out of the, out of the way for Trump's photo op, he has come out with a statement. His name's Adam D. DeMarco. He's an Iraq veteran. Uh, he serves as a major in the D.C. National Guard. Uh, he came out and he said that things did not go down, you know, how it's being said that they went down and on account of Bill Barr and Trump. He also 
came out casting doubt on the claims by Park Police Chief Gregory Monahan that the violence by protesters is what spurred Park Police to clear that area at that time and said instead that the demonstrators were behaving peacefully, that's a quote, and that tear gas was deployed in an excessive use of force. Uh, Monahan said that the operation was conducted so that a fence could be erected around Lafayette Park, but DeMarco came out and he said that the fencing materials didn't even arrive until 9 p.m., which was hours after Bill Barr said that the park police, uh, or told the park police to expand the perimeter, and then the fence wasn't even built until later that night. So basically, his statement is confirming, you know, what we kind of already knew and what seems to be the case, what is the case in cities around the country, which is that protesters are not the ones that are violently escalating these things. It is the police presence that is violently escalating these things. And in this case, specifically, it was escalated preemptively so that they could get their stupid, stupid photo op. DeMarco also talks about General Mark A. Milley. Uh, He's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he talks about his presence there. And he said that Millie, he arrived in the park with Bill Barr like 30 minutes before that clearing happened. He said Millie had warned DeMarco to keep all the officers from going over, from stepping over the line in terms of aggression towards protesters. This is a quote. General Millie told me to ensure that National Guard personnel remained calm, adding that we were there to respect the demonstrators' First Amendment rights. So that's DeMarco's account of how that went down and what Millie's attitude was showing up there on the scene. And Millie has now apologized for his presence in Lafayette Square. He said, quote, I should have not, I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created the perception of the military involved in domestic politics, end quote. So I like the story uh, because it's, you know... Tiny wins in terms of people that are in the military or in, you know, in that sphere coming out and actually telling the truth to people. Or at least a better version of the truth. Sad that we have to settle for that. And sad that I have to, like, sit here and celebrate these people um, who typically, you know, I probably don't really agree with their politics or what they generally engage in. But when we're living in a time where people like Barr and Trump are constantly lying about why things are happening and how they're happening for these people to come out and say you know express any remorse about their presence there and increasing the military presence in this police state that we're basically living in is comforting if i can use that word more comforting i don't know maybe i'll sleep an extra 30 seconds tonight (laughs) extra four winks yeah 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 well there's going to be a lot of, of, of these reports coming out, I, I feel. And, and I know the Washington Post did this incredible coverage of, of, of that. And, and yep. the whistleblower is saying he saw the CS gas canisters that were spent at Lafayette Park. And now we've got Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice Inspectors General um, initiating an investigation into uh, these police, federal, quote unquote, police activities, whether they're contractors or not. We haven't figured that out yet, but... You know, federal borderlands officers coming inland, and but they're specifically looking at Portland and D.C. So we'll 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 find out, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully sooner rather than later, we've got a hearing about it this Friday uh, in the Homeland Security uh, committees in the House. So we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for that. Totally. Thank you. Will you uh, uh, hang out after the interview and, and do the good news with me? Yes, I will. Sweet. That's how I talk to my dog. It's coming out. Oh, God.
who's a who's a good podcast host? <laughs> Are you a good host? Yes. Do you have worms, AG? <laughs> you have little justice worms. Yes. <laughs> justice yes. worms. Yes, you do. <laughs> Who interviewed Mary Trump yesterday? You did. Yes, you did. Good All right, girl. we'll be right back <laughs> with Joshua Geltzer for a discussion about what he thinks Barr should be asked if he shows up to testify on Tuesday. Stay with us. Hey, friends, it's AG, and this Helping in Daily Beans is brought to you by Sunsoil CBD. CBD is not only gaining in popularity, it's popping up in everything now, from coffee and supplements to smoothies and even pet treats. And that's why uh, I am here to tell you about Sunsoil CBD, because CBD can be very helpful in a variety of applications. But you have to know who to trust, how to take it, what's good, what's not, uh, with the ingredients that you, you know, that they're transparent and, and, and trustworthy. And those are some of the questions I had, but Sunsoil CBD had all the answers. Transparency and quality control are what set Sunsoil apart from the rest. With Sunsoil, you know what's in every bottle and exactly where it came from. There is no second guessing because they only use ingredients that you can trust. Most of their products have just two, organic hemp and organic coconut oil. And they farm all their own hemp in their Green Mountain Farms of Vermont and extract the CBD themselves, testing for quality and purity every step of the way. That sounds like a really nice job, by the way. And they never use pesticides, herbicides, or GMOs. And because Sunsoil does everything in-house and keeps their products simple, they can offer the highest quality CBD at really, really unbeatable prices. In fact, Sunsoil products are half the price of other ingestible CBD brands. Every Sunsoil product is USDA organic, including their oil drops, soft gels, capsules, and coconut oil. Uh, I like to put a few of the oil drops in my morning coffee or my smoothie after a workout, and sometimes I take a soft gel at night before getting some great sleep. And one of the best things about Sunsoil is that as the largest CBD manufacturer to partner with 1% of the planet, they will be donating 1% of Sunsoil's annual sales to help environmental nonprofits that do good for people, plants, and the planet. Sunsoil removes all the guesswork by making pure and simple CBD products at unbeatable prices. Get 30% off your first order by going to sunsoil.com slash dailybeans. That's sunsoil, S-U-N-S-O-I-L dot com slash dailybeans for 30% off your first order. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me today for the interview, he serves as the founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, and he's a visiting professor of law at Georgetown. Hopefully I'll go there someday. Um, they've recently updated a piece he penned with uh, our friends Asha Rangappa and Ryan Goodman, and they did this at Just Security, where he's an executive editor, Joshua Geltzer. Josh, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for the chance to come on the show again. So you're welcome. It's a, it's an honor to have you, a potential future professor. I'm really excited. So uh, Bill Barr is set to testify before Congress today, and you've amassed a list of questions that you think he should be asked. So what would you ask him? There is so much here, in part because Barr has deferred, postponed this testimony so many times, in part because Barr has done so many things that many of us worry about, that this should be uh, fairly epic, assuming that the folks on the Hill do their job of asking tough questions and assuming Barr actually gives answers to those. Let me start with one category that I, I think your listeners will be familiar with, which is the category of cases in which Barr seems personally to have pushed for very strange positions and that category of cases happens to be cases involving close associates of the president of the United States, Donald Trump. So we have the Flynn prosecution, or as Barr would have it, non-prosecution, as he <laughs> seeks to drop those charges. And I think here, the key is to put this in context. I'd love to see Barr asked, can you name one other case, one other case, in which the Justice Department, after getting a guilty plea from a defendant, 
without the court identifying any error, the court has not said there's a Brady problem or anything like that, in those circumstances, any other case where the Justice Department has sought to dismiss the very charges to which the defendant has pleaded guilty. Roger Stone, I'll mention as well. I'd love for Barr to be asked whether he can recall any case, and remember, he's been in the Justice Department before, where he or he's aware of someone else overruling line prosecutors on a sentencing recommendation that was within the federal guidelines range, because that's what happened very late in the game here. So I think those sorts of context questions about the Stone case, the Flynn case, would be very useful. Yeah, particularly the sentencing recommendations uh, as written and penned by this Justice Department. I think Jeff Sessions uh, did it. So they're right. The Justice Department plays a role in setting the the guidelines in in the first place. And then this justice, the the Trump Justice Department, um, had, which brought the Stone prosecution in, in the first place, but had also earlier indicated what its position was likely to be on sentencing only for this last minute uh, withdrawal, really, of that and and um, recommendation of something um, more forgiving. And, you know, even the fact that Barr, at least based on extensive media reports at this point, was personally involved in the case, that's unusual. I think it would be great to ask him, how often does he personally get involved? Does he worry about doing so, particularly in cases involving close associates of the president who made him attorney general, given that he seems only to be involving himself personally in cases involving close associates of the, the president who made him attorney general. So that personal involvement is itself strange in this in this matter. Yeah, and they could follow up uh, on some of the things that Zelensky testified to with regards to the Stone case as far as did you pressure uh, so-and-so, Tim Shea, to do this? Did you pressure, you know, th- some of the things that uh, Zelensky, one of the top prosecutors in the Stone case, top prosecutor in the Stone case, who t- who pulled himself off of the case when this intervention happened, some of the things that he testified to before Congress. Exactly right. Uh, Aaron Zelensky, the, 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 one of the career uh, prosecutors on that case, who, as you say, stepped off it after this last-minute intervention, his congressional testimony was that by every indication, by every conversation he was part of or made aware of, the lowered, the more forgiving sentencing recommendation was being pushed by main justice. And it was doing so because folks there, and to some extent then in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of, of Columbia, basically knew the president wanted this. And the president wanting something is not a reason to change how we do criminal justice and and law enforcement in this country. It may be the reason to push various policies, but it's not how to handle particular cases. And that hearing where where, where Zelensky offered that very compelling testimony was on politicization of the Justice Department. And I think you're going to see that theme be one of the dominant ones during Barr's testimony on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And remind us which committee he'll be testifying before. So... It's the Judiciary Committee on the House side that has been working for quite a long time to get uh, to get Barr to testify. And in some ways, the very time lag in finally obtaining this testimony has just um, led to the questions he should be asked mounting. So when he was first asked, the whole Jeffrey Berman uh, fiasco in New York hadn't happened yet. Now we have a situation where, so far as we all can tell from the outside, Barr met with the 
head of the Southern District of New York's office, the U.S. Attorney's office there, tried to pressure, maybe even coerce uh, Berman into resigning. Berman declined to resign, and Barr then told the world that Berman had in fact resigned. So the lie in normal times would itself be the scandal, but of course, the even more concerning, perhaps, the even more um, interesting or complicated part is what was the urgency of trying to push out this person? None of the justifications for uh, for doing so that have been offered publicly so far really make sense. And so that's a whole line of questions about Jeffrey mm. Berman, uh, Berman's departure. Eventually, he did resign, but only when he elicited from Barr a pledge to put the legally mandated successor in place for him. That whole fiasco has accrued since this uh, invitation, so to speak, to, to Barr to testify was even first issued. Yeah, it would be interesting to ask him under oath if his reasoning for having that J guy move to New York and get a job, uh, if that was, if that, you know, under oath, is that the real um, reason? And of course, so many follow-ups there. And I just want to let you know, I have not yet read your list of questions because I have my own and I was wondering, I didn't want to be tainted when I came into this interview about what I think should also come up. Uh, and I wanted to ask about not just the favors that the Justice Department has been doing for Trump associates, but the uh, going after his political rivals, including Obamagate. I think there would be a, a, a really great line of questioning about, you know, Durham and what he's uncovered and where's that report and why has it been held up? I know why it's been held up because they don't have anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, what what kind of sort of, you know, where that is uh, is headed. Do you have anything in, in your list about Obamagate? I'm excited for, for your list because these sound like questions that he should be asked as well. And I don't think the the dubious phrase of Obamagate makes it onto our list, but but <laughs> the very fact that he would have trouble explaining what that gate is makes it a good question to ask, as, as you suggest. We do have a whole section on the Durham investigation, which in a sense is one of the more forward looking categories here. That's Obamagate. That's that's Obamagate. At this side, it, maybe it all fits into the category of purported wrongdoing, purported reason to investigate the folks who came before the Trump administration. And even there's both micro questions and macro questions to ask there. Macro questions like, why does this thing exist? Why is Durham, a, a criminal prosecutor, covering ground that the inspector general of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz, already covered through months and months of investigation, ultimately yielding a lengthy report. So that's kind of a big picture question. Why does this thing exist? Why are you reinvestigating the investigators? Then there are more micro questions, such as the fact that Durham, after Horowitz, the inspector general, released his report, Durham issued a statement casting doubt on what the inspector general of his own department had just found. Why, why did that happen? Why would Durham comment on his own ongoing investigation? Why would he offer rebuttal to his department's own inspector general? Those those are questions uh, about the Durham investigation, among some others, that, that I think Barr should be asked on Tuesday. Yeah. Speaking of Horowitz, I would be interested, you know, with the new opening of uh, the investigation into, uh, you know, federal unmarked agents, et cetera, uh, you know, the Border Patrol being uh, sent and disseminated to cities um, off the borderlands. You know, what do you do? You, and, and of course, the, the DOJ and DHS inspectors general have launched an investigation into that and what happened in Lafayette Square Park. 
Uh, it'd be interesting to know if he still has faith in the Department of Justice Inspector General. And then, of course, my follow-up. And this is personal, really, for me, because I've been wondering about this for a long time, though I don't think it's something that'll come up, and it's probably not as important as the rest of the stuff. Where in the frick is the FBI New York Field Office Inspector General report that was due out a year and a half about the leaks from Rudy Giuliani about the Wiener laptop? But that's, you know, that's old news. <laughs> there is just just so much of concern in what should be one of the quieter, less political pieces of our federal government, the, the Justice Department, the FBI, and instead it's been dragged by the President of the United States, by his Attorney General, into um, into becoming political uh, hot potatoes uh, as as they're as it's bounced around. And you know the, the the question of how Trump and Barr want to talk about Horowitz's ongoing investigations into things like the situation in Portland is, is an interesting, um, not so much legal as political puzzle, because Trump has taken what Horowitz has already found, which while, it, while Horowitz said that the opening of what we all call the Russia investigation was justified, was not political in its nature, he also found that there were mistakes made. There was wrongdoing in the, in the FISA process. And, mm -hmm. and I think those of us who try to read his work candidly have to acknowledge both of those. Uh -huh. Trump has seized on the FISA piece to wildly mischaracterize it, suggest mm -hmm. that it means that the whole Russia investigation uh, was somehow wrong, which is not at all what Horowitz found. But in a sense, Trump has, has pegged himself to a finding of Horowitz. So what does Trump do now? Does he try to knock down Horowitz, worrying that Horowitz will be critical of what's happening in Portland? But is he? Does Trump feel he can do that to someone uh, whose FISA finding Trump has built so much out of? So it's a little bit of a bind, I think, for Trump, for Barr, about how to think about how to talk about Horowitz. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess we'll see to the extent Barr gets asked about it on on Tuesday what his line is going to be. Yeah, and I've been saying that uh, since I heard about the DHS and the DOJ inspectors general announcing that sort of. Uh, teamwork uh, of looking into Portland and Lafayette Square Park that, you know, he Trump, like you just said, has painted himself into a corner because he relies on yes. his own spin of the Horowitz Department of Justice Inspector General report and that they came out both to do this at the same time. Any retaliation would be extra suspicious, although all of his inspector general firings are suspicious. Um, and... Uh, of course, there's always the recent uh, New York Times article about the unmasking of the source behind the uh, Steele dossier um, and, and how that went down. But I'm interested also, what, what are some of your, I know you've got some zingers in here. What, uh, what else do you have for us? Well, you know, there's even more. So there, there's this Halbank issue. Uh, this is um, uh, an investigation coming out of that same southern district of New York where Berman was in charge till he was uh, eventually uh, ousted in a sense. He, he submitted his resignation to Barr. And you know, this is this is an issue. This is a, this, this Turkish bank being investigated where John Bolton, uh, for whatever credibility it has or doesn't has, has said he was very uncomfortable with the president's role in trying to um, avoid a criminal indictment of a bank, uh, despite allegations that this bank was involved in a multi-billion dollar scheme to violate uh, U.S. sanctions against Iran, something that this president, mm -hmm. remember, 
um, purports to care a, a lot about. This is you know the maximum pressure campaign. This is one of his big foreign policy pushes. And yet this one bank, for which it's been alleged there are, are, are um, there was possible in, intervention by the president, seems to have, have been shielded from from scrutiny, let alone from criminal charges. That is something that has not had the public uh, attention, the public prominence of um, the Stone issue we talked about or the Durham investigation, at least once it emerges. And yet it is well worth asking the attorney general what he has been involved in on that front and maybe even more interestingly, what he understands the president's personal involvement to be on that front. Yeah, the Hulk Bank thing was definitely um, really interesting because we know from public reporting he was trying to keep that from happening. And then, I mean, it reminds me of uh, the ben the Benchkowski meeting with Giuliani um, and Trey Gowdy, where Bill Barr just happened to stop by, but now we've learned that it was actually scheduled that he be there when they were discussing Giuliani's client, the Venezuelan guy. And then, of course, the DeGeneva meeting with at the Justice Department about Fertosh, which can lead you into talking about this uh, entire Ron Johnson Senate uh, investigation into the Bidens and Burisma, uh, where, where they've been receiving information from, um, you know, a, about Shulkin from that, the, you know, one of the Giuliani associates, the pro the pro Russian Ukrainian guy. So there's all there's all sorts of I mean, this testimony could last for nine days if we really there's so much <laughs> corruption. Um and, uh, you know, of things that we found out since he's been refusing to testify. Um, uh, what are uh, for the we've got a couple minutes here left. What what um, what other questions do you think are of, of like the utmost importance that he be asked? Well, you, you've just brought up Ukraine and there's a whole line of questions about that Ukraine thing, the one that got the president impeached, even though that may feel like a lifetime oh, that ago thing. At, at this point. <laughs> that thing. That thing, right? <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're Bill Barr, you, you get this call memorandum between the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine, and you see that your name is, is, is mentioned in the call memorandum, presumably reflecting the fact that Donald Trump mentioned your name on the call. So there's a basic ethics question. Did you think about recusing from anything having to do with with the with the whistleblower complaint subsequently fired? Did you consult the department's career ethics professionals, the ones whom Jeff Sessions and I have many critical things I might say about Jeff Sessions, but at least on this, Jeff Sessions did consult those people and recused himself from Russia-related issues to the chagrin and, and anger of of Donald Trump. Did did Barr at least go through that, that same consultation route? He ultimately decided not to recuse, so far as anyone knows. Why? On, on what basis? Um, and then, even apart from his personal involvement, you know, that whistleblower complaint, as we all now know, addressed behavior by, by the president. It talked about lawyers for the president, the National Security Council, attempting to bury the call memorandum. It was under bar that the Justice Department, as we all understand it, shared that with the White House, the very White House that was the subject of the complaint. Did Barr play a role in that? If so, what 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 led to thinking that was proper, appropriate? And on that, again, there's a whole cluster of questions that, that Asha and Ryan and I offer on the Ukraine issue. Uh, but the Office of Legal Counsel, ultimately, of course, reports to, to Bill Barr as a component of the Justice Department. That office reached a very strange conclusion that the complaint should not even have gone to Congress, despite the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community Michael Atkinson, subsequently 
fired by the president. Um, despite Atkinson's finding that the complaint was required by law to be shared with Congress. Mm. He interested to know what Barr, what role Barr played in crafting that OLC opinion, reviewing that OLC opinion, again, all on an issue that I think any normal lawyer would have recused from as soon as they see their own name at the center of it. So that's yet another cluster of, uh, of questions that could occupy eight to 12 hours <laughs> if we had the time on Tuesday. Yeah, I think there's only six hours set aside for this. What time does it start? And do you think he'll show up? Uh, on the second question, I hope he shows up. Um, you know, congressional testimony, it's it may not be fun for, for, for officials who do it of either party in, in any set of circumstances, but it's really essential. It's, it's a chance for for, for those who do oversight, who must do oversight in the legislative branch of the executive branch to ask tough questions and get answers for themselves and for the American people. And, you know, as, as a former executive branch lawyer, I am both aware and even sympathetic to the fact that a responsible executive branch witness may not be able to answer every mm -hmm. question exactly as asked. There may be privileged material, classified material, but that shouldn't stop you certainly from showing up, but also from making a good faith effort to answer what you can. Mm. Um, the, your your uh, logistical question, it's it's Tuesday at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern. It's, uh, again, in front of the House Judiciary Committee, and it is live on their website and, and I think via a page that the, the committee may have on YouTube. So I, I hope Americans um, are able to tune in for at least portions of it because I, I think it's just, just a huge hearing on some really, really big issues of our day. Yeah, agreed. And I hope you come back and speak to us after the hearing later this week so we can discuss what what uh, what went down, uh, provided he shows up, and we will see. So thank you very much, um, visiting professor of law at Georgetown. Your, your, your list of credits is, is so long. I would need hours to read it. But... Uh, executive editor at Just Security as well. Joshua Geltzer, thanks for coming on and speaking with me today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, everybody, stick around. Right after this, we will be back with the good news. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. If you're a regular listener of the show, you've heard me rave about my Helix mattress. You've heard Joelle and Mandy talk about theirs and Jordan talk about hers. It solved our sleep issues because it was customized just for us. Well, I'm excited to share with you that Helix has launched a new company called All Foreman. It goes beyond the bedroom to bring you amazing customizable furniture for the rest of your home. All Foreman makes beautiful sofas, chairs, and love seats to your specifications, and they deliver directly to you with fast free shipping. You customize your own sofa using premium materials, and you do this at a fraction of the traditional stores. With Allform, you can pick your fabric, which is spill, stain, and scratch resistant, which is great for the pod pets. You pick the color, the color of the legs, the finish, the sofa size, and the shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your family. I picked out a three-seater sofa and customized it in whiskey-colored leather with a walnut leg finish and a chaise lounge. It came in a couple of days, and I put it together myself. No tools necessary. It's super roomy and modern looking, and the fact that it was designed just to my specifications is the best part. Normally, if you want to order a custom sofa, it takes weeks or months, and you need someone to assemble it in your house, uh, and it can you have to have that nine-hour delivery window. But like I said, Allform takes three to seven days, and you can put it together yourself in a few minutes. Super easy. Allform has gorgeous armchairs and love seats, all the way up to eight-seat sectionals, so there's something for everyone. And you can start small and add on later if you move to a bigger house or your family grows. And best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. But you will love it. They also have a forever warranty. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash dailybeans.
All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. And welcome back to Jordan Coburn. How are you? Still good? Hello, I'm doing great. Yes. Good girl. Th- thank you. <laughs> um, uh, all right. We have uh, a lot of good news today. And I'm sorry we didn't get to the good news yesterday. The interview took up three whole blocks uh, of the show, and I didn't want to cut any of it out. So uh, we are going to do the good news today. And if you want to send in your good news stories, you can do that by going to our pinned tweet on our Twitter account at DailyBeansPod or go to DailyBeansPod.com and click on contact and you'll see all sorts of options from the drop down form there. You can either send in your good news, you can send in your quarantine confessions. We'll have a new episode for you on Saturday. Comes out Friday for patrons, ad free. Uh, and uh, let's see what else. You can submit corrections there um, or just tell us how you're feeling or if you have any uh, website issues or merch shop issues, anything. That's where That's how you get a hold of us. That's the best way to do it. Um, sometimes we'll get like DMs and stuff on Facebook and Twitter, but we, those are harder to get a hold of. So if you do it through the contact form on the website, dailybeanspod.com, it'd be better. So how about I kick it off with our first bit of listener good news from Teresa and Teresa's pronouns are she, her. And Teresa says, I volunteer for an organization called the prison university project which provides an accredited associate's degree to the folks inside San Quentin State State Prison. Side note, in January, we achieved accreditation candidacy and are, to our knowledge, the only institution of higher learning whose only campus is inside a prison to do so. Awesome. Uh, The pandemic has struck San Quentin really hard. As you've heard in the news, it's been a terrible feeling for those of us on the outside to sit and watch helplessly as our students and everyone else is stuck inside those walls. Luckily, thanks to an anonymous donor and now hundreds of other kind souls, we were able to put together a care package for everyone inside the prison and deliver it at the end of April. At the beginning of July, we did the same for Avenal State Prison and are in the process of assembling a second package for San Quentin. We received over 300 letters from inside San Quentin, some of which you can read at the link below. Our plans are to do the same thing uh, next for the folks at California at the California Institute for Men in Chino, where the infection at San Quentin originated, and the California Institute for Women. We've also sponsored food trucks to give free burritos to all of the staff working at the two prisons, since their job is rather nightmarish at the moment. I wanted to share this story because it's such an amazing thing that the prison is allowing us to do, not to mention the generosity of our anonymous donors and the many other donors, and the countless volunteer hours spent putting these packages together. Organizations like Ear Hustle and the Friends of San Quentin News have also been instrumental in spreading the word. You can read more about our project and the organization, uh, and and then they give um, a a pretty lengthy URL here, which we'll tweet out. We'll tweet this out and share it with our patrons as well. So that's so amazing and so wonderful. Um, And I love that you call them students (laughs) because that's... You know, you know how I feel about about most of the people behind bars um, not, not needing to be there, um, mm-hmm. especially when people like Roger Stone go free and mm-hmm. people, you know, people like Brianna's ta- Brianna Taylor's murderers are just walking around, haven't been arrested, not in prison. Yeah, um, it's have- more or less just a systemic way to keep black people behind bars at this point in our country. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that when we went to. 
did our show in Philly and we went to the the state penitentiary, the the Philadelphia do you remember the prison we went to? Mm-hmm. And then we saw that whole big installation mm-hmm. on Yeah. Um Prison Industrial on, Complex. Uh, the prison industrial complex. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh and and eye opening and very, very disturbing and sad. But uh um, yeah. I really, really appreciate um the work that, that Teresa is doing here. So thank you very much for, for all of that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I just reflecting on that trip that we took, one of the most compelling parts of that exhibition was that part at the end where you get to write down something that you maybe did or did not do, uh, like a crime, something that was illegal. And then some peoples were selected and put on display publicly. And, you know, the point being is like, there's all these people walking free that are, you know, it's kind of like a confession wall of sorts. And you know, with the understanding that many of those submissions were true, there was there was so much inherent privilege, obviously, in those stories. And people were reflecting on that privilege as they were writing it, you know, saying, like, I did this and I never got caught for it. And and that's just, like, really fucked up that this is how society is, basically. And I thought that was that was powerful to see. That the kinds of things that people are behind bars for now... Uh, and have always been behind bars for stuff, you know, under like the three strikes law, for example, nonviolent drug crimes that, that land them in there for a majority, if not their entire life is, is so, uh, inhumane and disgusting, honestly. So I, if you're ever there, definitely go, I don't know, maybe the installation isn't still there, but even just going to support that organization that did that there is, I think, a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. What was the name of that? prison um eastern state eastern state eastern penitentiary, state penitentiary. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i have a hoodie yeah. somewhere yeah it's a really cool hoodie that was a really really <laughs> great tour i love that trip so much that was just fantastic i love that city shout out yeah it was amazing yeah um cool thank you next up from fan fiction karen in oregon uh, uh oh <laughs> this is the tits mcgee and and <laughs> All right. I found a way to protest, uh, protest is in quotes, at BLM Portland despite my fibromyalgia and need to stay away from COVID and tear gas. I found an independent reporter, Andrew Kimmel, Mm -hmm. who has been live streaming from the Portland protests. Ah, Andrew Kimmel is the guy that said on Twitter a few days ago, all right, I'm going to fucking Portland. Like, what is is stopping me from getting up and going to Portland? And then he did. And that is that is rad. Uh, continuing on with fanfiction Karen's post I get to be on the ground with him I've been amplifying his signal by posting what I see through Andrew on my Facebook page my activist friends are thanking me for staying up all night and giving reports so they can stay informed too I love me a good picket line or protest but this body is getting old so it's great to do virtual protests via brave reporters online Andrew Kimmel is on Facebook and Twitter if you want to check out his work yourself and maybe become a supporter to keep independent journalism going love you guys that's rad um yeah that's that's a great i always appreciate when my friends are amplifying those live feeds a lot otherwise how would we know you know what the hell's actually going on there and filming the police is it's never been more important it's always been important but especially right now when they're trying to do a fascist takeover of our cities Mm -hmm. yeah and i i'm with you andrew kimmel is awesome and i was watching his reports and somebody who was on our pod red t raccoon um was there live tweeting as well. Uh, so, you know, that's a really, really good creative way to 
to do your part, to do what you can, because I know, I know, I feel you. It's like, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are immunocompromised or can't be out there themselves and feel like they want to do more because we, I think all of us, all of us resistors, we have this urge to just be in that crowd and help. And, uh, it's, it's, if you can't, I, I understand that feeling. So thank you for doing that. Next up from Nathan pronouns, he, him. Uh, hey beanies love the show two things the beanies are a children's music group from australia and then there's a link here that takes you to the beanies uh, formed in 2016 they consist of three theater performers Uh, the group have drawn acclaim and garnered an australian podcast award for their educational podcast of the same name nice the beanies A response to the rising usage of tablets and smart smartphones among children with the aim of producing Australian-made children's entertainment and encourage creativity and imagination without the use of screens. All right. Well, there they are. I like that. Yes. They're pretty adorable. Okay. Like the Wiggles? <laughs> you do? Did the, did the Wiggles ever cross your radar? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. But, okay. like, only as a very, very old person. Right. Um, right. I was just I was wondering, like, in what context you would have ever really, uh, <laughs> you know, ingested the artistic masterminds that are the Wiggles. You know, I can't really remember. Probably from the internet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Some memes or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, number two. AG's chat with Courtney, that's going to be Courtney Smith Kramer, reminded me of this lovely, lovely story. And then there's a uh, link here as well. And this lovely, lovely story, let's go here and see what it says. People from all over the world are sending emails to Melbourne's trees. Melbourne gave 70,000 trees email addresses so people could report on their condition, but instead people are writing love letters, existential queries, and sometimes just bad puns. (laughs) Hi, tree. You are just outside my work and you make me happy. Keep growing and keep on treeing. Awesome. (laughs) That is. Dear Magnificent River Red Gum, I admire you every day as I walk past you on my way to and from work. You seem to have been around for some time. Is there any chance that you were here for longer than the time of white settlement? You look to me to be substantially older than any of the other trees around Princess Park. Is this true? Does this entitle you to any special treatment? How old might you be? Hopefully, you will outlast me in the land of the living. I'm very interested to know more about your history. Regards, and hope you enjoyed the rain this weekend after such a long, dry month. Babe, I'm sorry that you're so sick. Can I climb you one last time? Strip down that bark for me, baby. It'll make you feel better. Right. Okay. Very superstar. Very sexual towards the tree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here's another one. Uh, <laughs> Dear smooth barked apple myrtle. I'm your biggest admirer. I've always wanted to meet you, but tragically, I'm stuck in New York. I think you're the most handsome tree of them all. Tall with an inviting open canopy. I would lo- I love to just dream of you, the smell of your clusters of white flowers, the sight of your lush, dark green foliage, and feel your patterned bark. You inspire me to live life to the fullest and pursue my dreams. You keep growing despite the terrible tragedies of this world. You are loved and deserve the world. Love, some person in New York. This is so amazing. Yeah. You guys have to go to this. Uh, we'll we'll tweet this link out. Uh, but yeah, Melbourne City Council set up email addresses here for 70,000 trees. Um, this is so great. When Courtney mentioned talking to trees, I looked this article up again and read some of the emails. Um, and then they give some examples. I've already read those. Uh, I know people can 
gross. I know people. What is this? I know people are gross and disgusting and Republicans, but reading lovely things that people email to trees makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nathan. This is amazing. You guys should check out this website. Um, I think it's. I think if you just Google people are emailing trees in Australia, you'll find it. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a very niche, uh, niche Google search. Oh, the last one comes with a dog photo. So this is all you, Jordan. Oh, yay. All right. Finally, from anonymous pronouns, he, him, anonymous says, him. Oh, shit. I don't watch this show. And that's a problem. I really should. In the voice of Professor Farnsworth from Futurama. Uh, Do you know that voice? Um, no, but I'm going to guess it's good news, everyone. Uh, Perfect. Let me see if I'm, let me see, now I have to see if I'm right. (laughs) Professor Farnsworth. That sounded, that sounded convincing to me. Yeah, I've watched every single. I'm still in the middle of watching the entirety of The Simpsons, and after that I'll probably move on to Futurana. Futurana. Futurama. Here we go, let's see. (laughs) Oh. Okay, I was wrong. He sounds like this. <laughs> oh, yes? <laughs> so it, yeah, so it would be good news, everyone. There. Perfect. Beautiful. I believe it. I believe it. And then end impression. <laughs> so that's that's all. Um, uh, first off, my amazing brother-in-law, who has been staying with my wife and I during quarantine, got a job working for the Joe Biden campaign. Holy shit, that's rad. That was me. Uh, the chief, The chief of staff for analytics. He'll be doing computer stuff. <laughs> we're, we're proud and sending good vibes to Joe in the campaign. Even though I was a Bernie dude, I'm voting blue no matter who. I am with you, Anonymous. That is me. Uh, secondly, inspired by my brother-in-law, I decided to get active and volunteer for Joe Biden. I signed up to phone bank. Lastly, we got a doggo. Photo attached. Yay! Her name is Appa. Or Appa. A-P-P-A. Uh, she's our little sky bison. Oh my god. That's an amazing freaking phrase. Little sky bison? Hell yes. It's like, oh my god, yes. It looks like the first time the never-ending story dude was adopted. (laughs) It it does. It does. Uh, Shout out to Small Dog Rescue New England for helping us save such a cute pupper from a kill shelter in Texas. Oh my gosh. And mazel tov to Jordan on her new pod dog. Thank you. Thank you ladies so much for breaking down the news and keeping me sane the past two years. The last thing... I think you guys should add Professor Farnsworth, good news everyone, to the good news intro before the modest mouse kicks in. That is all. Peace. Oh, yes. I didn't even know he said good news everyone. I didn't yeah, even know he had one. I'll have me to neither. find it. That makes a lot of sense now, the instruction to do it in that voice. So we should definitely find that and uh, and perhaps we can work it in. That's such a cute freaking dog. Congratulations to you also. How adorable. Look at his ears. Oh, God. They look like bunny ears. They look like the the Easter ears that you would buy, like little Easter bunny headbands or something. They're so high and floppy. So cute. They are. They are. Man, freaking love doges. They're the best. Thank you, everybody, for your good news. Mm Mm-hmm. Much appreciated. Much Uh, appreciated. Good news, everyone. Yeah, I I think we should add it, too. Um... (laughs) Again, we've told you where to send the good news, and I'm just reminding, I'm going to remind everybody a million times so you're not super duper sad when it happens, but we're going to be on vacation from August 24th to August 28th. Um, 
we are taking some much needed time off and we want to do it while that, you know, because right after that, there will be 75 days left, 65 days left to the election, 65 or 75. Ooh, yeah, we're going to go so hard. Yeah. And we're going to need to crank. So. Okay. So for patrons only, everybody, we are going to bring our book club series back and we're going to do Mary Trump's book because it's incredible and important and timely. And now that she's a friend of the pod, we're going to do it. And it's going to be fantastic, and we can't wait to bring it to you, so be on the lookout for that. Again, it's for patrons only, so head to our Patreon, patreon.com slash, are we, we're still at Muller She Wrote, aren't we, right now, for all of this stuff? Muller She Wrote, or the Daily Beans. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Cool. And you can sign up for as little as $3 a month, and it's going to be completely worth it. Our book clubs are always really fun, and we get to, you know, have a less regimented sort of discussion about what we read and... I miss our book clubs, and I think patrons uh, would say the same. So I'm excited yeah. to bring those back. Grab your copy and sign up to be a patron, and we'll start that thing. We'll start it together. Yeah, and that'll be six full-length episodes of bonus content um, for patrons. And if you aren't a patron and you can't swing it right now, you can sign up to be on the wait list for uh, sponsored uh, patron patron. I don't want to say patronizer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have a bunch of people donating sponsorships. And so you can uh, sign up, um, be on the wait list for that. And if you would like to pay for somebody's sponsorship for a full year, it's only 36 bucks plus, plus tax. And I have to thank Stephen Isaac. Stephen Isaac is who is making this possible um, with uh, with his, uh, his sponsorship. So thank you to Stephen Isaac and thank you to our patrons. And I'm looking forward to that book club as well. It's going to be really, really interesting, really fun. And I think uh, the Mary Trump interview was a great kickoff to it. It'll give you a little bit of flavor of, of, of the book. And if you haven't listened to that, it was yesterday's beans. So check it out. Yay. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's it. <sighs> Any final thoughts? Or was was that kind of your final thought? Yeah, no, I was just excited to talk about that. There we are. Right on. I'm, lo- I'm really looking forward to it. I miss those book club episodes. Yeah, me too. Um, but thank you, everybody. And we will uh, we'll see you tomorrow. So until then, take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Take care of the planet. And take care of your mental health. I've been AG. I've been Jordan Coburn. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>